It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. On February 13, 2017, Two teenagers were killed while enjoying a day off from school. The case went unsolved for years until an arrest was finally made. Today's guest broadcast journalist Susan Hendricks investigated that double homicide that shook the small community of Delphi, Indiana. Over the years, Susan has fostered deep connections with those united in the pursuit of justice for Abby and Libby. She joins us today to talk about the case and to discuss ways families and communities can cope with grief and move forward after tragedy. Susan has anchored HLN's live news show, Weekend Express, and has delivered news updates on Anderson Cooper's AC360. She's the author of the book, Down the Hill, My Descent into the Double Murder in Delphi. Welcome, Susan. Thank you so much for joining us. Joan, it's so good to be on. Thanks for having me. So, Susan, for our listeners that may not be familiar with the story, tell us what happened on February 13th, 2017 in Delphi, Indiana. Well, Joan, it was a makeup school day, a day off from school in Delphi, and both Abby and Libby um, were together the night before, spending the night at Libby's house, and decided that morning, hey, why don't we go to Monon High Bridge? We have the day off. It was abnormally warm for that time of year. Normally, it's about, I would say, in the teens, and it was in the uh, 40s or low 50s. So they decided to do that. They asked Kelsey, Libby's sister, if she would drop them off. And in the past, she said to me, in the past couple times that they had asked that Libby had asked for her to drive them somewhere or Libby she said she couldn't she was too busy she had a job she felt guilty as an older sister and thought okay I'll do it I'll drop them off I should I should be a better sister and she dropped them off and that was the last time she ever saw them Abby and Libby went down the trail reaching the Monon High Bridge um, which is an abandoned railroad bridge 63 feet high but it's somewhere that kids like to go and uh, prom pictures were even taken down there for some kids, and it it was outdoors. So Libby's grandmother, Becky, thought, oh, they're away from their devices, fresh air, why not? No one thought anything of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, Libby took a Snapchat picture of Abby on the bridge. We've all seen that image. And uh, we don't really know what happened afterward. We do know their bodies were discovered the next day. We also know that Libby hit record on her cell phone, maybe thinking that the man coming towards them on the bridge seemed a little off, a little creepy, hit record. We do hear his voice. We see his walk. And he said, guys, down the hill. So that's what authorities had to go on. This man on the bridge, evidence from Libby's phone, and the investigation took so many twists and turns, and uh, no one was arrested for close to six years. And so, you know, here are just two young girls doing what we've all done and our children have done 
many times before. Can you tell us a little bit about the town? What type of town was it? It's it's one of those small, Pleasantville-type towns mm-hmm. that you maybe hear of, depending on where you grew up, but rarely see. Such a small town, under 3,000 people. Um, vast open land, farmland. Really just a quaint, beautiful town. So it's you could picture it, but when you really go there and see it, it's a feeling of a, a tight community. Well, and this is a horrific tragedy to begin with, but when it occurs in a place that you really don't expect something like this to occur, I would imagine it just rocked everyone to the core. It really did, considering uh, that authorities thought from the start, and I agreed with them when I saw the bridge, I understood, because at first there was speculation and thoughts from people who aren't from Delphi that maybe it was a trucker that was passing through, if you will, and and got out and, and went down there and did something to the girls. But when you walk down the trails and you make it to the bridge, you realize just how difficult it is to get to the bridge and how it's almost hidden. So authorities, after investigating a bit, said, we believe this person is a local and we believe he's from here. So considering it's under 3,000 people, let's say 2,900, cut that in half, considering it's a male. And that's when everyone thought, who do we trust? Mm -hmm. Could it be that person? Could it be this person? And it changed, I believe, the feeling of the town. Did you begin by covering this story for work? And, And then when did this become personal for you? I did. We covered it on the set. I started as a reporter in California, originally being from New Jersey, and uh, studied in school journalism at Arizona State, then started in California, uh, eventually making my way to Atlanta at CNN. And so I started in the field as a reporter, spent years doing that. Then on the set, you, you feel like you're reporting at times, depending on the breaking news of the interviews. But when you're really there in a place, it's much different, as you know. So being on the set, I remember the story breaking. I remember Abby and Libby were missing. Then I remember on February 14th, the day their bodies were discovered, covering that from the set, it being breaking news, and doing an interview from the set um, with Ron Logan. Uh, His property, the girls' bodies were found on his property. So I remember that. A couple days later, I remember when it was released, um, Libby's recording and hearing his voice saying, guys down the hill and seeing or at that time, I'm sorry, it was just down the hill. The guys, authorities released that in 2019. So 2017, down the hill, and then seeing an image of the guy and and wondering, what did those girls go through? Mm -hmm. And that's when it became personal, though, my first time visiting Delphi, about a year and a half later. Susan, did they have any serious suspects right after the murder, or did it take some time for them to hone in on a person of interest? The short answer is we don't know, and that's by design because the authorities from the start, I remember um, interviewing Sheriff Cope Lesenby, interviewing Sergeant Kim Riley, and when I did, I walked down this hallway and seeing a sign that said, watch what you say, the media could be listening or something to that effect, meaning everything was kept close. Mm -hmm. And the reasoning being, um, I interviewed Superintendent Doug Carter several times saying, look, this could hinder the investigation. And it was understood. It really was considering everything 
they had the evidence they had that they didn't want to get out. And I remember Detective Holman telling me, look, Susan, we don't want false confessions here. So we want to keep close to us what only the killer would know. Well, they also said, look, we need the public's help. Please call into the tip line. It was constant and consistent at every press conference. Please call the number. We need your help. Abby and Libby need your help. Please call in. So I believe in hindsight, the public took personal interest, of course, in this. And then they felt that they weren't getting similar information back. Like, okay, we called in. We're helping. What can you tell us? And the media, too. Um, Frankly, the media wanted more information because it became frustrating. And the families as well. But the families were working close and continue to work close with law enforcement. But they would never say if there was a suspect. They never really officially named anyone. And we're talking more than five years as a suspect. They have said, um, and the media scrutiny was tough. I, I do feel bad for law enforcement who were at the center of this, like Sheriff Tope Lesenby, who who said, look, oh, yes, if the media, let's say there was a name and it looked similar to sketch one or sketch two, and that person was arrested for another crime, it came up, someone from the media would ask Sheriff Tobe Lesenby, is this connected, myself included? And he would say something to the effect of, it's someone, of course, we're looking into. Well, then that became the headline the next day. Then mm-hmm. he completely shut everyone out and stopped talking at all because he never said suspect. Um, and then there was speculation, and the families were hurt by this because they thought, look, we don't want the media to put up a picture of this guy, let's say, who was arrested for something else. And then if you're the public just happening to see that um, either on your phone, on TV, and thinking that it's solved, and then you stopped looking. So the families didn't want the public to believe that it was solved when it wasn't. Susan, when we hear of a case like this, obviously our hearts break and and we can feel the pain to a certain extent. And then we see these mass shootings and all these horrific tragedies that are going on in the world around us. And we feel it for a moment. But I don't think we really understand the pain that a community and, and these family members feel. So you were in the middle of all of this. Can you describe for us what it's like to be in the middle of that type of pain? Well, I believe I got very good at compartmentalizing, um, being a reporter, being on the set, and it's fairly easy to do. It doesn't mean you don't care or you're not invested. It means that the next news cycle comes in fast, and you compartmentalize. Okay, this is the story. What's coming up next? Producers are in your ear. It's constantly moving and evolving from day to day, even the most horrific stories. But when you're there, And you meet the families and you get to know them on a different level, a level of being very comfortable in front of them and hearing stories about Libby and how she was funny and how she would joke and seeing Abby's cat that she loved in the house that she lived in. It's very it's it's very different and it's hard to compartmentalize and separate yourself, even though it's not about me. So I never wanted to express how sad I was. I wanted to become friendly with the families and get to know them, and I did, but it really had a a deep, lasting effect on me to this day that it has. Watching these family members, what have you learned about resilience? How do these people move forward? There's some words that are overused, inspirational, resilient, but both of those terms apply to both families, Abby and Libby's. They 
really have no other choice, of course, when you're in a situation like this. But the way they handled it and dealing with the constant media and towards the center of this with certain armchair detective scrutiny, just, I mean, considering what they went through, also the lack of information that they were getting um, and the thought that this could happen again. That's what they said was their biggest fear, that another family would go through this as the days, weeks, months, and years went on and no one was in custody. But at times I would be sitting with the families and talking to them and uh, thinking if, if they are getting through this enough to do interview after interview and to miss Abby and Libby to quiet times, Mike Patty told me Libby's grandfather are the most difficult that he'd wake up in the mornings, walk by her picture and say good morning to her every morning. But her laughter was gone. The house was empty. And to know that they went through that, it's just, they are resilient and inspirational. Listening to the story, this is the worst of the worst that you can experience as a parent or a grandparent. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And I know that at various, um, we've been on stages together speaking at a, crime con for several years and there are questions and statements from the audience and there are people there it, it's really a close-knit community before i knew what it was i i what i looked into it and thought oh this the family wanted me to host them on stage and i did and wow what a community that um kevin balfe has built there because there are people who truly know what they're going through we can think we may know or maybe someone close to us has passed away or we think we know someone who something similar has happened to but no one really understands what they're going through unless they've been through it themselves so I believe that they have found connections through that and I remember Diane Abby's grandmother saying to me you know it's just a look you, that someone can give you and it, it your eyes connect and you realize okay they're in this club that no one wants to be a part of that no one wants to be in. But once you are, you really understand what the other one's going through. So an arrest has been made, and I know there's a trial date. I believe it's for January 24. What can you tell us about the suspect? Do they have a motivation for it? And I do believe that there was a confession on a phone call from jail. Yes, Richard Allen is his name. Uh, Court documents were released. There was a hearing in June where... um, it was heard on a recorded jail phone call or prison phone call with his wife when the the hearing occurred. And then about two weeks later, the judge released documents where we were able to look through those documents and see that, in fact, it was his wife that he said this to um, several different times. And she ended the call abruptly is what the documents stated. And also his mother, I believe the document said as well. Well, the defense team is saying, look, it's because his health and mind is deteriorating because of where he's being held. This is inhumane. He should be moved. Well, they had a hearing on that. The judge eventually decided, no, that's where he he is staying. The warden got on the stand and said, no, he is safe here. He does have a change of clothes. He's not treated any worse than he would at another uh, jail or prison. Uh, but what authorities do know, what we have learned since the arrest is that He did have no priors. He, of course, was not in the CODA system, meaning linking him to DNA. And he has a wife and a daughter, a grown daughter who's married. And uh, he worked at 
CVS at the time of the arrest, Mm -hmm. but nothing that would make him stand out. And looking back, that press conference, it was April 22nd, 2019, when uh, Superintendent Carter said, we believe you're hiding in plain sight. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, he was right. He was. So this was just a member of the community. It could have been anyone. It really could have been anyone. And that's what the family felt during that almost six-year time period in that small town, looking around. And even uh, Tara, Libby's aunt, said to me, look, even when we're out of state, let's say we leave Indiana for work and we look over, we're at a stoplight. She says she's looked over and saw someone that maybe looks like the sketch. And she started to not trust really anyone, not just in Delphi, but outside of Delphi in different parts of Indiana and different parts of the country because they didn't know where he had come from. He could be from anywhere. So they wanted um, to keep that open to the public, meaning he could be from Delphi. He could not be from Delphi. And sure enough, he was only a mile or two away from the bridge, his house. Are there any theories floating around as to why he may have committed this crime? No, and I, I always think with being a journalist, as you know, who, what, when, where, why. Mm-hmm. And I always say through the years, I don't think we ever get the answer we're looking for with why. And I know motivation is a factor, can be a factor once the court process comes up and, and how the case is tried. But why, I don't know. I spoke to Paul Holes um, for a while on this case, and what he said, based on his experience being part of solving the Golden State Killer and his understanding and his experience, he stated that someone like this could have a fantasy for so many years, could have this fantasy in his head that that's what he wanted to do. And living so close to the bridge, and again, innocent until proven guilty, he is Richard Allen. But if he did do it, was he down there? Was he, in a sense, in waiting to see when, quote unquote, the perfect time would be for him to do what he's been fantasizing about for so many years? Because now, to my understanding, he's about 50. Back then, 2017, he'd be 44 years old. It's hard to believe that someone would wake up, a father, a husband, 44 years old, and decide to murder, brutally murder two young girls. Right. Did he do it before the question? That's what I and keep thinking. I'm wondering the same thing. Yeah. If, you know, what they'll turn up in this investigation once they look at him seriously or what they already know. Right. And what what finally led to the arrest? We do know that there was a quote-unquote clerical error because Richard Allen, soon after the murders, came forward, spoke to an officer in a parking lot and said, hey, I was down there at the bridge. Um I didn't see the girls, but I was there, and and here's my name and what have you. So the officer wrote down the information, and then we never heard of that again. But I do remember Superintendent Doug Carter always saying, look, we're, gonna, we're never giving up. This isn't a cold case. If it doesn't lead to anything, we start over from the beginning. So I'm wondering, did they find that file? Was it in a a filing cabinet? Was it on the computer? What led to that? Did someone call in a tip? Was it someone who called in, maybe a family member? I'm speculating here. But what finally led to the arrest? Because there were were names being tossed around and, and, and theories, but never Richard Allen. He seemed to come out of nowhere. What was it like for the family members when they made the arrest? Ooh, I remember what they thought it would be like, at least Becky Patty saying, I'll be screaming from the rooftop, Susan. I'll come to Atlanta and say, we got him. 
because for years that's what they focused on. And Becky would post on Facebook, today is the day, knowing that one day that would be true. So both families had a mission, hand out the flyers, uh, do interviews as, as many as they they wanted to or felt comfortable doing. Abby and Libby's family felt differently. Abby's family didn't feel as comfortable. They did the interviews, but Libby's family just dealt with it differently, as you see in, in crimes that we cover. Each family has um, – it's their prerogative to do as much or as little media as they want. But they work so hard, both families, with law enforcement to find the killer. And finally, when there was an arrest, because before this, there was – names kind of thrown out there never an official suspect but absolutely of course never anyone charged with the murders of abby and libby so once that did happen i called becky she was at a wedding um, and walked down the hall called me back and said i can't believe this this is uh, it was a uh, from what i read in her voice a combination of excitement but shock almost that finally close to six years in that someone is in custody and then in the days following, I spoke to Becky, and she said, I don't really know what my purpose is anymore. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's when grief really started to set in. Of course, there was grief, and of course, there was mourning, but maybe the mission um, was the focus for close right. to six years. And then when someone's in custody, maybe the emotion shifted to now what? Right. There's a diversion of attention. You you feel the pain, but there's a, there's, like you said, there's a mission and now they, they sit in the quiet and, and, it, you know, we have this thought of, we always say we want to get closure. I'm not really sure there is such a thing as closure, but I, I often think that when you're in that type of situation, you think when we, when we get the suspect and he or she is arrested and we'll put an end to this, but I, I actually think that's when it begins. Yeah, absolutely. I used to use that term and say closure, but I've since learned it. It's maybe closure for the media on that case, but it's never closure for the families. And just like you said, I believe that's when it begins because the, they no longer, the emptiness is still there. Libby won't be home. Abby won't be home. They won't hear their laughter or hear their voices. And I remember Becky saying, I don't really know what justice Susan looks like to others, but this is justice for the families and and justice that this doesn't happen again. Um, But not justice for Abby and Libby because they'll never be brought back. Susan, from what you've learned from being a part of all of this, when someone goes through such a horrific experience, what can community members or other people do to help out? I've always wondered that, too, um, with grief and and help and and ways you can help. I know there's the Abby and Libby Memorial Park that it started as a thought. Mike Patty was telling me a thought of maybe, you know, an amphitheater or softball field. And it turned into this beautiful uh, park with an amphitheater with a softball field, a place for other kids to be and uh I remember hearing Abby's mom say, oh, Abby would have loved the amphitheater. That is so cool. So they work together as a unit, both families, volunteers, you name it, coming in to help build this. There were pavers that you can buy and you could still buy. So I think donations help if you're closer to the families, if you know them. Maybe a post on Facebook, I'm thinking of you just to reach out. I, in grief and, and talking to these families and, and learning more about it, sometimes people say, I've said it too, 
is there anything I can do? And I think that kind of shifts the, the to the family, something that else they have to do is to answer your question. I think if the closer you are to them, maybe just being there and sitting next to them. The book is Down the Hill, My Descent into the Double Murder in Delphi. Susan, if our listeners would like to get more information about you and your work, where can they go? Um, the best way, I think, is to follow me on Instagram or Twitter. Um, they can reach out to me, too, and message me as well. Susan, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much, Joan. It's a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in.